So we're talking 30% right now, these seven companies, huge weighting. And that gets to your market cap weighted versus equal weighted points. So mm -hmm. these stocks are making up a huge percent. So when they move, when they move, we move just like that. Then the other, Back the to other 1 thing percent funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Doogles, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. What a be at Quinnipiac? Oh, we're here on the, the, the last week of the year when uh, people Ooh. see their families and love that time with their families, but also need a break. We are here to support. This is your break. So, Dougals, there's a lot of pressure on you this week. You have to be extra funny, okay? Like, I'm, like, 1% funny usually. So, extra is just, like, what, 1.5%? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, true. And you can't do any of those crazy, like, catchphrases that don't make any sense either. That's all, that's all I do. So, this morning... <laughs> that's my this funny, man. Yeah, that's my... That's, that's, you took away the 1%. This morning, my son said, we have to continue the annual tradition where I come on the podcast at Christmas time. And I didn't have the heart to bring Ooh, it to him. Yeah. That that was two years ago. <laughs> so you say annual tradition, you didn't do it last year. Like you did it once. It's, <laughs> but, and then he, and then he left. So like, I, I don't know how those two things go together. Let me get on the podcast. See you dad. You know, but anyway, to, to go back to your point last week of the year, man, we got four more days of trading in this year to close out. What is a fascinating year. And we'll, we'll touch on this. A little bit later, when we talk about the Magnificent Seven again, fascinating year on so many fronts. It's it's stressful. Do you know why? Yeah, I know why. But you tell me why. Well, it's stressful well, for you, me because my stock picks right are neck answer. and neck. It's it's a horse race to that's, outperform that's, the S and P. That's what I was thinking. And that's what listen, I was thinking man, too. We need some value. We need value to outperform for this week because I. I really care. I don't want to own the garbage that is the S and P. Like I picked my picks for a reason. Doesn't really yeah. matter if I'm like you know two percentage above or two percentage below. But man, I want I want to win that race. I'm competitive. No, th th this is it's what is so fascinating to me. I didn't know if you'd care about this or not, but it is the same for me because I'm I'm seeing where you know we talk about do you should you be checking your portfolio every day or whatever. Right now, right now, I'm like ooh. Like S and P was up like 0.6 percent. Was I? You know what I mean? Like it's every hour. Like where? And it's not. This has nothing to do with the the typical like thought process I'd have over you know long term invest. It's not about investing. It's just about competition. It's right just now. about competition. Well, That's and funny. for me, it's uh, I, there's a stupid podcast to blame. If I wasn't talking about this nonsense, I wouldn't care at all. I wouldn't even no. know. But yeah. I know that it's, uh, it's we'll wonderful. do our portfolio breakdown at the beginning of the year. So, yeah, I want to be will. able to brag about it. Ooh, it's going to be good. It's going to be real good. All right. Speaking of that, to support the show and get episodes early, if you want, grab a premium subscription, skippydoogles.supercast.com. Those are still uh, discounted uh, through the end of the year. The other thing I was going to say, Doogles, is early next year. So you're probably three episodes away. We will do for the premium subscribers a whole portfolio breakdown um, and specifically the premium, for the premium annual for the yeah. annual premium subscribers we're going to break down this year so we'll talk about the year that's about to end right now how we did what performed in what kinds of ways and we'll drop knowledge 
on what's happening next year. So if you want that annual premium subscription, if you don't want that, that's cool too, <laughs> but I don't understand why. <laughs> the other thing we should discuss right now is listener mail. Skippydoogles yeah. at gmail.com. Hit us up with that listener mail. And we got two pieces of listener mail today. We're going to start off with it. And as always, when we hit the listeners, hit that jingle. They fight. Okay, first up, this piece in the Dub S.J., a.k.a. the Wall Street Journal, is about wonderkins. It's titled, A Wonderkin Hedge Fund Strayed Beyond Value Investing. Here's What Happened Next by Juliet Chung and Peter Rudigier. I don't know how you pronounce his last name, but I'm going to give it a French flair. Rudigier is what I'm going to say. What's interesting about this piece at a high level, right, is a, it, it hit on the Wonderkin hedge fund straying beyond value investing and didn't tell me what happened next. So that second sentence, I'm actually not quite quite clear about. But Oh, it told me. I, it told you? Reading comprehension okay. needs to improve. Yeah. <laughs> or I made it, or I made an assumption which benefits my uh, core belief system. That's probably what happened. Yeah, I think you extrapolated is what you did. <laughs> Look, 2% funny right there. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. Shut it down. Shut it all down. <laughs> Uh, so this this article is about these two dudes that met at UPenn back in the day. It's kind of the start of this was impressive to me because these two dudes met at UPenn and within a year started a, a fund. So like at the age of 22, started this fund and got some notable organizations like MIT and their endowment fund to invest. Like, beep, give beep, me. beep. Time out. Time out. Time out. Time out. Time out. The, very impressive. Good track record up until 2017. Props to these guys. I'm not throwing shade. But hold, yeah. hold on. Here's how Here's how at 21, you get to okay. start your uh, value investing hedge fund. Stein's father once served as a president of the New York City Council. His mother, a married billionaire, Evelyn de Rothschild of the, the European banking child. The other dude has parents who were a real estate developer and a mother. Like these people started that all they had to do to start their fund was go grab a few tens yeah, of millions yeah, okay. or hundreds of millions from their family. That makes things a lot easier, man. That does make things a little bit easier. That's true. When you got Rothschilds going on. When you have the hundred million, then talking to the MIT endowment gets a lot easier. Like it, that, so yeah, that that is true. I'll also say, and look, I'm not a writer, so I don't want to rain on any writing parades here because I think this is a well-written piece. But Juliet and Peter, just one thing is when I read that little paragraph, when it talked to, when it like mentioned the parents, I did go back and check a couple of times because it said, Father did this. Mother married someone that wasn't the father. I was like, Whoa. "Oh, dude, I, I'm still confused by that." I was <laughs> yeah, actually yeah, going like... to talk to you that off pot because it's like, "Whoa, they started off in a pretty good position. Then it appears they separated, and then still, I don't." Yeah, yeah. yeah. I had to go I research. It, it took me background research to figure out what happened here because she married the Rothschild, the Rothschild Evelyn Rothschild, which I also realized was not a lesbian couple, which was good. That was on my stereotyping <laughs> of the name. Married Evelyn Rothschild. Evelyn Rothschild passed away, sadly, then married oh, her father. So I had to do my own like background research to then figure out what that paragraph meant. That's all I'm saying, Juliet. But the rest of this was pimp. So nice job. All right. So we got these dudes, came from background, stealing third base already. So they were able to raise a whole bunch of money. Then to give you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build them up for a second. The Remember you were talking a few months ago about the new edition of security analysis that your boy, Seth Klarman? Yeah. 
Oh, they're of... they're buds with Klarman, dude. Yeah, yeah, they're they're good buds with Klarman. Uh, and Seth Klarman, for those that are not aware, is a big time value investor, like very reputable, awesome returns, and just like a respectable dude from everything I can read about. At least respectable dude when it comes to investing. They had the chance to be a part of that, which is phenomenal with style. And then, as you mentioned, 2016, they had 18% annual returns after fees going through 2016. Crushing it. And yeah, crushing it. And they were, to, to go to the title of this, right, beyond value investing, that implies they started with value investing, which is true. They were big, big, big time Warren Buffett people. And so they would read all the Berkshire annual reports. That's how they like got to become friends, it seems like, back in college. And so through 2016, that was their thing. Profitable, consistent organizations that they saw on the cheaps. Then they strayed. You want to talk about the straying? This is fascinating because this is this is about human psychology more than anything yes. else. From my take. So oh, yeah. what someone like Buffett, I don't know if I can say did, but historically would have done from 2018 to 2023 is underperform the S&P 500 because the S&P 500 gets a little bubbly. The Magnificent Seven is off their rocker and his shareholders would get pissed at him and he would hold the course. He's done it throughout his career multiple times. And then when the bubble pops, he gets the last laugh. That's 2008. He's buying the preferred shares of Bank of America and whatever else is happening, right? Mm -hmm. They didn't, weren't able to win that psychological battle. They have like garbage stuff like Carvana. Man, I looked at <laughs> looked at Carvana earlier this year to see if I could invest in it when it was down like 97% from peak. Uh, Wayfair, furniture seller. By the way, shout out. Wayfair, I own a stock that... Wait, that you own Wayfair? Wayfair but um, You own Wayfair? No, no, no. I own a furniture company that is 20% of Wayfair's business. So Wayfair, good. Oh. Uh, <laughs> that, um, yeah, that, that's different. Yep. They bought AppLovin. Latch McLove McLovin. <laughs> it's all no, I can oh, love. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh they clearly move away from hard school value investing, which to your point, Dougals, had made them tens of millions, if not hundreds mm -hmm. of millions of dollars, yep. and 18% returns after fees. Yeah. And ultimately, where does this go? I'll I'll stop making jokes about my portfolio and just give you the high-level overview. They were managing in 2021, they were managing as much as $4.7 billion. Wild. Oh, and then, sorry, where's the... And then it crashes. Um, that's the figure I was trying to find. It never mentions how much it crashes. It, it, when, it, when it talks about the crash, because maybe they didn't put that out there, when it talks about the crash, it mentions uh, Carvana and Wayfair specifically and what those stocks crashed in, but it does not talk about its portfolio as a whole. It just mentions that it was bad and like psychological torture, I think, was one of the phrases that was thrown out there. But it doesn't mention the number. Uh, I thought it did, but you're actually right. It does. It does show those graphs and how stark the decline is for those Not two good. large holdings. Not good. Bruce House. And now, basically, they're trying to rebuild things there. Let me let me just tell you the key takeaway for me is uh, this happens to everyone. It all goes bad when you buy the mansion in Aspen, Colorado. You're that's, on the wrong track. That's when things always turn. You're on the wrong track. That, yep. That's when you can't even see value investing anymore. So Dougal's, when I'm ready to do that, you got to pull me back. I'm not allowed to buy the Aspen house, okay? <laughs> I, I will. <laughs> no, to hammer home the last point. In 
at the end of 2022, shares of Carvana are down 98%. Shares of Wayfair and App Levin are down more than 80%. So those weren't value investing, the value investments when they picked them up. 2022 is a place where they explode. Their 2023 performance has rebounded nicely, but man, when you fall off that significantly, uh, you yeah. lose a lot of times you lose your investor's confidence and then you have to almost rebuild from scratch. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm just going to continue on the French train today. There are two things this made me think about in the world of string. Have I talked about the story of Southwest on this pod before? One of my favorites. Um, I don't think so. Okay. Okay. One of my favorite corporate stories ever is a Southwest Airlines. So first, many times, many people don't know this. Southwest Airlines phenomenal stock historically back back when uh when i was looking at southwest this was about 20 years ago it was the best performing stock in the u.s for like the prior 30 years during the time where you had walmart talking about some intel i'm talking about some microsoft right you got all these companies southwest was number one but what i want to talk about here when it comes to string love this story so southwest airlines was started back in the late 60s. And when they started, they said they drew on this napkin, this world famous napkin. You can look it up on the onlines. They drew on this napkin, like where they wanted to fly to. And it was between three points in Texas. So this is back when airlines were very regulated. And so if you were a Texas airline, you didn't compete with, let's just call it a California airline, really at the time, right? And so what they did was they stole their whole business model. Like when I say stole, actually, maybe I can't even say stole because they willing like the, the person that gave it to him willingly gave it to him. There was an organization called Pacific Southwest Airlines. Like this is how much they stole their business model. That all they did was cross out a word and then their business came to, to pass. Pacific Southwest Airline was an airline in the beautiful market known as California. Yay. Pacific Southwest Airline, they had their their steward people, what they call the, you know, people that are on the plane. They, they were happy-go-lucky, largely female. Their planes had big smiles on the front. They were about, like, fun and laughter. They were about being inexpensive, right? It's all, all this kind of stuff that you associate with Southwest. What Southwest did was they knew how good they were doing, so they got the permission to fly out to California, and they copied, like, photocopied for the literals, photocopied yeah. all their, like, flight manuals, all that kind of stuff. Anyway, let me skip to why this article reminds me of it. So Southwest photocopied all this stuff just did what Pacific Southwest Airlines was doing. And guess what they did? They stuck with it. They just, they saw that it was awesome and they stuck with it. They wrote down what their like top 10 principles were of how they operating principles, how they run their company and stuck with it. Pacific Southwest Airlines on the mean, in the meantime said, we got this good thing. That means we could also probably do well with hotels. We could probably also do well with rental cars. Pacific Southwest Airlines, boom, 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 tankadanked. Ended up getting bought in the 1980s, and Southwest Airlines crushed it over the next few decades. This made me, when I was reading this, I thought so much about that story. Like, because you, what do you do? Two dudes from UPenn, what do you do? You go and you photocopy the playbooks of Warren Buffett. You execute on that. You see a lot of success. And then what happens? You, you get into hotels. You buy some no hotels. Reason. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? You buy some hotels. Exactly. It made me think about, about that point. And, and uh, look, I don't know where they, I hope them the best. I hope for the best. Uh, and, uh, but they strayed like pretty aggressively. And I, and I was looking at this and it made me think about Southwest. The other thing it made me think about, this one will be a lot faster, is there's this point in the uh, the article where it says, 
they are not like they said themselves we are not a hedge fund we are like a family investment partnership or something like that yeah yeah back when i lived in san francisco i used to go to this place called king of thai fantastic spot five dollar beers sorry five dollar food two dollar beers yeah oh, come on now and they had big old king. tvs yeah they had big tvs they had these these uh wonderful couches right so you go there to watch the game and they had signs all around this place that said we are not a sports bar i went I come here to sit on your comfy couches watching big screen TV. <laughs> Call a spade a spade, bro. No, man. It's mind trick on you. You you weren't going to come back if it was some dingy sports bar. You're, Maybe. That, that could yeah. be it. That could be it. All right. So on the Southwest, before you guys read the autobiography or the biography, I actually think someone else wrote it. Listen to the How I Built This on Southwest Airlines. Fascinating. Tells a lot oh. of the stories you're talking about, but also like it's the perfect intro to their because their operating model, there's a little more to it than that, Diggles, as you know. Like at one point, they're having a hard time and they, they're basically doing 150%. Each employee at Southwest is doing 150% of what the employee at United is doing. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons their stock was crushing because yeah. they were like rewriting industry standards. Fascinating. It's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. So Jonathan yeah. sent sent in this uh this article. Thank you, Jonathan, for the listener mail. So I should have mentioned that at the beginning. I like thoroughly enjoyed it. I'd recommend reading it. Yeah, I'm with you. It kind of flops at the end and just says they're trying to rebound. Yeah, they hit they hit a we'll deadline. I think they hit a deadline or something, or like a word <laughs> count. <laughs> no, everyone at the WSJ is on vacation right now. They threw in some stuff <laughs> that they had to fill up the paper. I love it. Oh, fair enough. Okay, second piece of listener mail is about Congress. I'm going to let you take this one. Can we shout out who sent this one in, Diggles? Uh, yes, Adam sent this one in. Oh, man. All right, so just deep breath here. Um, we've talked about this a fair amount on the show. The listener mail we got was specifically about Nancy Pelosi's husband buying $5 million worth of NVIDIA call options. The, uh, I mean, Diggles, this specific trade is insane. NVIDIA's, or I don't get it. NVIDIA's in the <laughs> 450s or something, and they bought call options with the strike press at 120 a year out. Like, I don't even know what the strategy is. I honestly don't know. But it brings up a good point. And so I want to go to a tweet storm from uh, Chris Josephs, who mm -hmm. broke down some of the trade-by-trade -trade stuff. I think the important thing here is everybody's guilty and guilty as can be. So... This is uh, details from a New York Times investigation found that 81 Democrats and 101 Republicans filed almost 4,000 trades uh, with a possible volume of 100 million. They don't tell you the exact volume. That's why it says possible volume. Many of these politicians had 100% winners with some being perfectly timed. So here's, here's a few examples. A quarter of the folks that sit on the Energy and Natural Resources Committee traded either Exxon or Chevron. 33% of the Environmental Committee uh, traded on oil field services. Pelosi is probably the most famous. She traded up to $65 million. Here's some possible conflicting trades. She's overseeing the infrastructure bill. She's trading Tesla. She's overseeing a $10 billion army contract. She's trading Microsoft, who is involved in that bidding process. She's overseeing a $50 billion CHIPS Act while trading NVIDIA. Which goes back to the call options. Which goes back to the call options. Alan Lowenthal from California. Hope I'm saying that right. I'm probably not. 
has his wife making trades on Boeing. Okay. She sells $30,000 worth of Boeing shares on March 5th, of 2020. One day later, his committee releases damaging findings on the 737 jet and Boeing goes down 35% that week. Perfectly timed, right? Oh, don't worry. It's not all Democrats. John Rose from Tennessee sits on the Financial Services Committee, sold 250,000 shares of uh, Wells Fargo when it was at about $54 a share. His report is published five months later and Wells Fargo goes down 30% in a week. Meanwhile, I mean, do you want me to keep going? Do you get the point? (laughs) Mike Mike Johnson clicks forgot password on his E-Trade account. (laughs) It just keeps going. I mean, there's... 30 examples here like something's got something's got to give here this is so ridiculous i'm sure i agree so public sentiment says at least 60 percent say um that congress should be banned from trading individual stocks if not they should have to report the same day they make the trade i think the only right thing to do here is just ban it people should not be governing to get rich and the incentives are so out of whack. Let's go back to Munger for just a second. Like, if I was in Congress, and even if I got to Congress with idealistic principles to help the people that I represent, which I'd hope is at least how people start to get to Congress, as soon as I got there, the only advantage for me is to do insider trading. This makes so much sense. You can make so yeah. much money. It's silly. The other thing that kind of gets to me, though, is we, we've discussed in the past how even if you know the result of a thing, trading on it can be hard. Yeah. The results that they know are different than earnings. As an example, the results they know are this industry <laughs> is about to get trillions of dollars in funding. You know, I'm, I'm exaggerating that that figure, but th- like that's You're exactly a, a very, right. Yeah. No, I spent a lot of time reflecting on that because we've documented on many occasions how people found a way to know the outcome and made a bet that turned out to be wrong. Like yeah. there's no guarantee, but yeah, these results are, they lend themselves in a different way. It's not going to be a hundred percent success rate for everybody, but I think it's going to be a 70 to 80% success rate here because yeah, if government is writing a semiconductor, an American based semiconductor checks for $50 billion, it's hard for the stock to go down. Like it just is. Yeah. Or if you're throwing Boeing under the bus with your 737 findings that you might, your like intern is writing the actual yeah. document, you yeah. know what way the stock's going. It's it's incredible stuff. Most I, I think I'll say that I really appreciate journalists spending as much time on this as they are because I feel like the public awareness of this is much greater than it used to be. Mm-hmm. But it's absurd. I don't get how anyone thinks this is right it's stupid there we go all right thank you adam appreciate that fishbowl time i'm gonna reach in the fishbowl because as we come to the end of this year i'm excited to touch on something we touched on early in the year and middle of the year too let's close out this loop i'm gonna reach in the fishbowl to talk about the magnificent seven this wall street journal piece it's the magnificent sevens market other stocks are just living in it love that title i'm talking like mm, chef's kiss up in checha Love that title. I'm just going to give you a few quick hit figures from this because it's quite fascinating. So the Magnificent Seven, and these seven stocks, by the way, are Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon.com, NVIDIA, the king, Tesla, 
meta platforms. That's a Magnificent Seven. If there was a Magnificent Eight, you'd also throw Broadcom in there, because why not? But there's only ooh, Magnificent Seven. <laughs> but there's, there's only Magnificent Seven. So, but these, these seven stocks are up 75% cumulatively in 2023. Take that average right there. So then, S&P 500, there's another 493 stocks, right? Those stocks are up 12%. So with the index up in the, let's call it the early to mid-20s, depending on the day when you're looking, you can see how dominant right, the rest of those stocks are. So that, that's returns for this year. I know we have a lot of sophisticated investors that listen to the show, but for your non-sophisticated investors, this is because the S&P 500 is market cap weighting, meaning the largest companies hold a much greater share. Like I think Apple and Microsoft are almost 13% of the S&P 500. So if your biggest stocks outperform like crazy, your smaller stocks, it is really impactful to the index as a whole. So it's like crazy hogwash going on on multiple sides here. Yes. And I'm a, I'm a par. Thank you for setting me up. I'm a parlay that how much they make up of the index situation right now, because if you look at the share of the largest seven companies in S&P 500, it's almost 30%. Those seven, almost 30%. The, Ooh. the next highest period, right? If you go beyond the period right now was back in the early eighties when you were talking like a little over 20%, Yeah. even in 2000, in 2000, when we, we discussed Cisco and how Cisco was just blowing out the Wahizi, Jeezy, Foshizi. I'm talking about George and Wheezy back in the day. Even in 2000, it was about 20%. So we're talking 30% right now, these seven companies. Huge, huge weighting. And that gets to your market cap weighted versus equal weighted points. So mm-hmm. these stocks are making up a huge percent. So when they move, when they move, we move just like that. You know what I'm saying? Then the other- Back the to other 1% thing talk- funny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Then this this is like this is one of those uh, like vanity charts, but it just it's just cool to kind of look at. They had this graph in there that was a buildup of the Magnificent Seven in their market caps compared to other countries. Apple is basically the size of Japanese and enti- Japan's entire stock market, <laughs> effectively. Yeah. Microsoft bigger than France. If you put all of these seven organizations together, and they're waiting in the MSCI, All Country World Index, they are bigger than the UK, China, France, and Japan put together. In fact, all you need is five of them to get bigger. They put Tesla and Meta, you could just take them off. It don't even matter. How wild is that? I mean, it's why I've been screaming about international stocks being cheap for a while. It, yeah. If someone, <laughs> let's use the UK. The UK has been around for seemingly ever. An industrial capital of the world through a lot of recent times and we say one company apple is more valuable than all the companies in the uk that seems hard to swallow it doesn't seem like seems like mr market's a little crazy there Dougals. yeah it's uh i don't i mean i guess you could you could claim that yes these companies are u.s companies but they're so international that you know it's kind of you can totally claim that like yeah just but still i mean i it's it's mind-boggling it's mind-boggling i uh i'm looking for this meme right now see if i can find it because there is you know the um what is it the orange american chopper you know what i'm talking about that that show american chopper no okay so there's a show american chopper i haven't seen it in like a decade or so but it's a father-son duo and they make custom bikes like custom uh motorcycles oh yeah, for yeah. people uh, the meme so is a, them the, screaming at each other about something it, yeah exactly there's, that's the that's the meme 
I saw one this week that you just reminded me of, but I can't find it right now. But I saw one this week that was where the the dad was screaming something that was just like, why is the S&P 500 so overvalued? And then the son was screaming, like, that's why I've been telling you to get into international stocks and small value stocks. And it was so ridiculous. But if I find it, I'll shoot it over to you. But uh, but I, it was pretty funny. Wait, hold on. It's like, since it's a holiday show, let's just have a little fun here. My favorite meme of all time is, have you seen the one where the boy's sitting on the front steps of like his New York City townhome uh, crying? And he no. says, the, the kids on the playground are making fun of me because daddy's fund is underperforming the S&P by like 10%. And then the mom goes, oh, son, don't worry. Those silly kids don't understand that it's all about AUM. And dad now has <laughs> uh, like whatever, 500 million under. No, it's more than that. It's like a billion under management. And the fees on that are ridiculous. And we're just fine. We're going to have a great holiday. Like I'm paraphrasing <laughs> here. It, is the funniest thing I've ever seen. Oh, that's <laughs> oh nerd jokes. All right, the next graph, <laughs> next graph on here is showing the percentage of stocks that are within ten percent of their record highs. So historical average here is about thirty. So on average, about thirty percent of stocks generally over the past twenty years have been within ten percent of their record highs. Right now, it's about ten percent. So this is just another fact that's directionally demonstrating how concentrated the returns of the market are. The S&P 500 right now is about 2% off of its all-time high. And I'll say most likely we'll get there. Who knows? But like, if that's a, that seems like a safe enough bet. Most likely we'll get there. But so concentrated. Why does concentration matter? It matters because what we're saying is that really there are seven stocks that are doing well, not the market as a whole. I almost, situations like this, when you take aggregate narratives, everything's great because the market's doing well. But then you break them down into a little bit more granularity. You can start to say, oh, actually, the market's doing like, okay. Like it's, you know, it's fine. The 493 are up 12%. Like that's not a bad year yeah. by, by yeah. any means, but it's not crushing and cranking, right? Like you see otherwise. The last thing I'll say is about earnings. So S&P 500 earnings are expected to be up a little under 1% this year. So not a huge year for them. But if you take out the Magnificent Seven, according to FactSet, they'd be down 4%. Mm -hmm. So there's these companies are contributing like actual dollars. It's not, it's not all just speculation like it was 20 years ago. It's the, the relative boost that they get is kind of buck wild versus the fact that they don't deserve anything. Right. Like these are stocks that are putting a lot of dollars in the market, but up 75 percent. I don't know. Although I'm benefiting a little bit from uh, it. So there's also that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. As, as are you. It's just fascinating because, yes, you can tell any narrative you want in a fact based way right now. You can say, OK, you have some high flyers. Let's exclude them and look at earnings like you just did and say we're down four percent. Yet you, the index you track is up 25%. So that's multiple expansion, which is scary when we're already um, on high, on the high valuation side. So yep. world's yep. going to end, right? I'm not saying that. I'm saying hypothetically, someone could say that. You could also say layoffs are at recent, like for 2023, layoffs are at recent highs, like highs within the past, I think it's at least five years, if not 10 years. 
there, there's lots of scary numbers out there. It's a totally schizophrenic market. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, my default here, Diggles, is just say complex adaptive system. It's super complex, and that's why you need to be prepared for anything. I don't know what to make of this, honestly. It's next. It's going to make next year even more fascinating. Is what it's going to do. In 2022, S&P 500 was down like 18. percent Like I said, it's trending up 25 percent. 2024 is going to be yeah, that's the right answer. <laughs> yeah. 2024 is going to be fascinating. 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 Okay, I got one last thing in the fishbowl. It is potentially quick because because China. That's all I can say. Because China. So we discuss from time to time an organization known as Alibaba. And this stock, it's just like so cheap. It, it's it's mouth-watering, like gives me, gives me a chills in my spines, makes my fingers and my toes tingle how cheap Alibaba is. And then stuff like this happens, it makes me go, okay, yeah, that's why I'm not buying. So this week, China came out with some gaming regulation where if you if you add it all up, effectively what it is is saying that we're going to curb spending in games and immediately you get some of the heavy hitters that are in the gaming industry in china like tencent like netease get fall 25 percent. right their stocks fall 25 percent because china just comes out and says like you can't make money no mo we we talked a couple years ago about my uh my adventures in china where i had roughly 10 percent Roughly 10% of my portfolio was in tall education group. And then China came out and said, you can't make money anymore if you're an educator. Yep. That thing fell 80, 80 plus percent. It is, it's a dangerous world. Uh, and one of the things in this piece is that somebody said was people had thought this kind of risk should have been over and had started looking at fundamentals again. It hurts confidence a lot. That's on you, bro. If you thought this was over, that's on you. <laughs> Let's just say of my Chinese holdings, which at this point is only Alibaba, I have high confidence that I will make a great return. I'm not sure that it's worth the headache. (laughs) That great return (laughs) might not be worth the stress that comes with just knowing. It's like twice a year, I'm going to wake up and read something to the Wall Street Journal that's like, oh, that, to your point, that completely connects this investment it disconnects it from fundamentals. Fundamentals are great. Business is great. And that doesn't matter for certain periods of time when you're investing over there. Yeah. It's a curve balls. I, I guess, that, is it even a curve ball when you know that it could happen? You know, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if you can still put that in the that category, but I guess it still is because you don't know what it's going to be. Just like we talked about, it's the people from the Capitol and Hunger Games spinning a wheel. Just what industry it, are we going to take down next? It completely is. Wild. Yeah, it's fascinating. I think the 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 right approach for your know nothing investor is just to steer clear of it. it it's almost yeah, 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 for yeah, yeah. unless you really yeah. want a headache. I mean, it's like, gosh, it's almost like a Brazil or a Turkey or some of those others at this point. So you said that was the last thing in your fishbowl. Actually, I have one thing I want to run by you. I know you love buy now, pay later. Oh, have you seen the? Well, it pains gosh. me. Well, so the holiday spending trends are there are crazy, but um, I can't find this article right now. Have you seen? There's a new business model called Advertise Now, Pay Later. <laughs> no, I've not seen that. Laughter is oh, the right response. It, it's uh, trying to get small businesses that are 
heavily reliant on advertising to bite the bullet and finance their advertising spend with you. I'll give a simple example. Say it's like some Etsy retailer that advertises on Facebook. So they don't have the $20,000 that they need to do that today. So they finance the $20,000 and they pay it later. The thought is that if they advertise, they'll actually create revenue and be able to pay them back. But man, I know how that works. And it's not, it's far from guaranteed. That is going to blow up, Dougals. That's the only thing it can do is blow up. That's the only thing it can do. It's like uh, there was something recently I saw with buy now, pay later to go back to that, where people are using buy now, pay later because it doesn't show up on your credit report. The reason things show up on your credit report is to protect you, player. Well, because you're not credit worthy. (laughs) So Um, they're not going to give you those funds. We got to stop. We got to stop. That's all I'm saying. Well, while we're ranting there, so if you read any of the happiness literature as it relates to spending, the key principle, there's a bunch of them, but one of the key principles is spend money in advance and have the joy come, be completely disconnected from the purchasing decision because the purchasing decision can be painful, right? Yep. This is the exact opposite of that. Credit cards are basically the exact opposite. But when you say, I really want this $100 jacket, but I'm going to pay it off at 25 bucks a month over the next four months, your joy from that purchase is long gone the third and fourth month that you get debited the money back and it just creates pain. Like It's the perfect recipe to use spending to make you more miserable. Buy now, pay later. Perfect recipe. (laughs) So stop. Yeah, don't do it. Well, happy right, holidays, y'all. everybody. Is that what we're happy holidays? Yeah, that's right. Thank you for listening. Skippy Dougals at gmail.com. Skippy was talking about the premium subscriptions. Get on that annual if you want to hear about a breakdown of how we did this year and what we're doing next year in the next few weeks. Thank you. Peace. Peace.